world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTP.com, and today we're interviewing Christopher Tellefson. Now, I'm a huge fan of his work. I love Moneyball, I love Capote, I love Man on the Moon. But today, this this first episode is going to be broken into a couple of uh, episodes. Today we're focusing on passion projects. And I know you all have them. I know you've got one yourself that you're working on. You're either cutting it or directing it. Or you're helping a friend cut their passion project. And this is one of the things we sort of delve into. Because he has spent roughly four years, three, four years, maybe more cutting Lambert and Stamp and this is a doc that just got released at Sundance we did the interview literally he was getting on the plane as we were finishing this interview and so he was heading off to Sundance to be there for the official first screening at a festival and so we focus on this passion project that everyone has everyone's got one I know you have one just to give you a sense he, he worked all this time on it and already he's starting to get great great reviews on this doc and if you're a fan of the who i highly recommend you check this out you go to your local festival when it's there because i know it's going to make it to the circuit or the second it comes on itunes or netflix you check it out there it was directed by james cooper it's his directorial debut and already variety called it an impeccably directed debut and definitive screen bio of the hughes managers and the hollywood reporter actually focused on Tellison's work and said that Editor Christopher Tellison's credits are narrative features, and this marks an impressive step towards documentary, incorporating lively graphic elements and image manipulation, and making extensive use of black and white on news to integrate them among the vintage clips. It tells the full body story in the fast-paced two hours, harnessing the chaotic energy of the two men who generated the world of unconventional ideas and strategies. Already he's getting great reviews on this, and you've got to share this with your friends. Now I'll be putting these reviews that I find onto aotg.com slash cutting room and in the meantime as many of you know we have a phone number now that you can call us and I want you to contact us to call us to, to send us an email let us know about your passion project let us know what you've been working on all these years let us know when you hope it comes out what have you tell us what it is that's that's driving you to make this passion project and of course you can get us by email info at aotg.com or you can get us on our new phone number which is 423-352-POST. That's 423-352-POST. Or if you don't have a touchtone phone, it's 423-352-7678. Now, with this new technology that we're using, it's Google Voice, as many of you know. So Google Voice transcribes it and sends you an email when you've called. And of course, Richard and I have been practicing and testing the system out, making sure it works. And... What, what we found really funny is that if you have an accent other than American, and I would, I would include Canada in that, North American, your transcription doesn't make much sense. <laughs> it's, 
they guess at what the words are. So we're, we're going to have a contest to see if you can guess Richard's uh, message that he left me on Google Voice. Because Richard is from South Africa originally. And so the message is completely different from what he actually said. And so listen to after the interview for that contest. You can win a shirt. And uh, of course you can always let us know. Uh, leave a message and see if it uh, makes mistakes based on your accent. Also, just before I get into this interview, if you're going to NAB, we've got a booth. We're in South Lower 15816. I encourage you to come check us out. We're going to have mini golf there, so you can golf if you're a golfer. And of course, we're going to be doing live streaming interviews from the booth. Okay, so make sure to check it out. And I'll have more of that after part one of my interview with Christopher Tellison. Can you give us a sense of how you got started in the film industry, but how you ended up also in film editing? Oh, it was very circuitous. I was an art major. I went to the Cooper Union in New York City. So, um, interestingly, it's just shifted from being a, a, a scholarship-only school to having tuition, which is really sad. It's a very sad thing because it really helped getting in. It was a, a, a merit scholarship uh, that, you know, I didn't have to pay. I, um, it was very, I, I was pretty poor at the time, so it was, like, it was really appreciated. But I was an art major, and I had no context for it all. I loved movies. I loved movies just as a, as a movie watcher and watched movies all my life and was just, like, very, like, you know, in the 60s and to the 70s, there was a lot of a lot of classic movies on television, and uh, those those were things I really ate up. And then I, I started learning more about you know about cinema history on my own, and going out and seeing things that I wished to see, the, you know, French New Wave films, et cetera, and Japanese films, you know, just and especially Italian Italian films. I loved Italian films from uh, uh, near realism into uh, the kind of comedies of the, the late 40s, early 50s. And so, and in British cinema, I loved the early 60s British cinema. These are things that just like affected me. And so I was like a, a visual arts major. I took, you know, painting, sculpture, photography, et cetera. And in my last two years, I took an experimental film course with Robert Greer, the um, animator and experimental filmmaker. And I just sort of found something in that I started making little experimental films. And I kind of, there's a little six plate steam deck, or not six plate, a four plate, I don't even remember. But it was, uh, it, I just loved just putting images together and find, find things. I'd stick a Bolex in front of the TV. I'd go through the TV guide. No, I'd get a shot from um, Written on the Wind and then some things from uh, science programs on PBS. With, uh, and there was a wonderful, the, I, I, I could go on and on and on. But there, what happened was I got inspired, and I got inspired very specifically with just the effect of putting two images together and what, what, what that creates. And thinking about, thinking then about when I was younger and I used to watch almost religiously the 4.30 movie on uh, ABC. It was a, you know, after school there was always this 4.30 movie and it was in a two-hour format for years and it changed to a 90-minute format. And I just was very, like, like I'd, I'd lay awake not really understanding but thinking about how, you know, the 90 films that I'd seen in two-hour forms and then seen in 90-minute forms, they changed so much of the context of things, and it just sort of stuck in my head, in the back of my head. And then after getting out of school, I kind of felt like I, I felt like I knew what I wanted to do, and it wasn't an easy thing to break into. So I'd, like, you know, try to get apprentice jobs and things like that, but it was, like, really hard. So I got kind of lucky with a, a 
someone that I had met that saw some of the experimental things I was doing, and he was doing work for RAI, Italian television at the time. They did this kind of crazy little documentary stuff, and I got to work on that, and that was really wonderful, but it only lasted for like about six months. Because in Italy at the time, the, the TV stations, they, they were only uh, run by the current government, and the government was changing like every six months, so suddenly everything was gone. It was like, you, know, you walk in, it's like, oh, yeah, everybody's changed. You know, nobody's hearing. <laughs> it was like, okay, okay. And then I, I just pursued features from there, and I got a job on a really, 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 as an assistant on a very, very funky movie called The Stroke of Genius, which was like with Jackie Mason in 1983, 4. And it was a real disaster. The, the, the thing, it was a very, very like sketchy production. It was shot in, in Miami at the Eden Rock Hotel. And suddenly, everybody realized that all the checks were bouncing. <laughs> it was just a disaster. And the, the editor at the time, either I don't remember if she was fired or she quit. And then they, they kind of, they were in sort of a shambles. And so they kind of broke and They knew that I had a little bit of editing experience. They said, would you put together a rough cut? Okay, yeah, yeah, but I'd ask for cash up front each week. <laughs> 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 it was it wasn't much money, but I, I knew that they weren't necessarily good for it. So um, then I, I I did that. It was just it was pretty pretty terrible. I did everything I could to salvage it, and then they disappeared. I mean, disappeared like like in a caravan. Disappeared, just disappeared. And a year later, and I'm trying to do things in the meantime, but I got some art department jobs and just things. But a year later, they resurfaced with another film that was directed by Ralph Rosenblum, the editor. Ralph Rosenblum was like, a, like I mean, I had read his book. I saw every movie he ever edited, and he was like somebody that I incredibly admired. But the, the, the comic editing and like producers is like it's seminal, you know. And he's amazing. So they said, "Look, we um we want you to recut it under Ralph." Well, that other thing is happening while well, he's doing this other film, Stiff, which was edited by the editor was Sonia Polanski, who I a wonderful, wonderful editor who um was the assistant. She was she worked on Woodstock and she knew Thelma Spoonmaker, and then she became her assistant, her first assistant on Raging Bull, in which Sonia said on Raging Bull she went from youth to middle age. <laughs> it was like a, a grueling experience. It was amazing. And she went on to work with John Sayles. She cut um, Made Juan and uh, Baby It's You. But um, she was uh, terrific. And I've been just uh, being with these people and working with Ralph, working under Ralph. And Ralph liked what I did. Like, I just like went, I just said, look, I'm going to approach this. And, and I cut it down to, to it was a watchable 40 minutes <laughs> and did some things that he, he responded to. And I met through that, some people that were going to be um, working on the next Scorsese film, and I said, I, you know, I'll sweep the floor, I'll do anything, you know, I, would you hire me as an apprentice? And I got an apprentice job on that, and worked as like, you know, the apprentice on who was like third assistant, and uh, it was wonderful, you know, just seeing the genesis of, of the work that Marty and Thelma do from cut to cut to cut to cut, and that was a wonderful education within itself, but also Marty was like amassing his archive at the same time, and films would come in, I would get the job of like kind of cleaning them up and stuff, and he liked what I did, and he asked me to work on his archive. So about six months, I worked on, on Marty's archive in conjunction with the Museum of Modern Art, and sort of all these films would be coming in and coming out. I'd have to check and do this, and make sure that everything was cool, and get them off to be stored. And during that time also, I mean, Marty would have constant 
screenings, he'd invite us all to these screenings of uh, things that he was acquiring. I'll never, ever forget, like one evening, he had a, a screening of a new, fresh silver print of eight and a half, and it looked like it was shot like five minutes ago. It was so alive. It was just, it was thrilling. From from there, uh, the apprentice of the third assist, so on the next film, I wasn't exactly going to be bumped up to uh, first assistant or anything like that. And I really, my heart wasn't in assistant work or in archival. It wasn't where I would be, but I had a wonderful experience in doing that. From there, I found out that there was a company, a small company called Apparatus that emerged and that the people running this little, little nonprofit um, uh, film company were uh, Christine Bashan, Todd Haynes, and Barry Ellsworth, three recent graduates of the semiotic school at Brown. And they put together this thing. They were going to, you know, like make films. They were going to, you know, like accept scripts from people that just anybody could try for this. Anybody could send them a script and they were made an assessment and then they were going to produce three short films a year. And one of the films was uh, written and directed by a young director named Evan Dunsky, and he hired me to, to cut it. It was called Muddy Hands. And it's a, it was a lovely short, and it even had a dream sequence in the beginning that was shot on infrared 35 of a child running in a graveyard. And then we didn't know what it was going to be, and it turned out when it, was, when it was printed, it was like, when it was developed, excuse me, it was like solarized and pulsating and went into negative. It was just amazing stuff, and I, I, I had a really great time cutting that. And it went to a lot of festivals, and it got a lot of attention in its own, you know, small world of short films. And that got me a, a very funky independent feature, which was um, called, it was called Revolution. It was about three um, singing and dancing Marxists who want to blow up the World Trade Center. It was, in, this is like in 1987, 88, something like that. So it's way earlier than it would be completely controversial now. <laughs> it was interesting. It was fun. And from there, someone that was connected to that and to the, to the short, a um, line producer, Brian Greenbaum was his name, was line producer on a very small independent film called Metropolitan, which was just in its first week of shooting. They did not have an editor. And he introduced me to Stoneman, and I did Metropolitan. And Metropolitan was, you know, the real beginning of, you know, of my career. And that was like in 1989. And then I just like, I was, then I was on a track to really move forward and be put up for, you know, a lot of films. I think that, so that's, that's really, that's how it started. <laughs> in, a, in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying, trying to catch my breath now. <laughs> well, there's so many, it's so funny because there's so many questions. Like you're, you started off as, as an art student and how do you think that influences your perspective while you while you're you know, in cutting process? You know, it's interesting. After when I when I made that decision, like you know, at the end of, of art school, like like um, I really want to be an editor. Now it's like oh, I should have gone to film school, and I was all like torn up about not having done that, or maybe I should go for go to graduate school for film. But you know, it, it's interesting. It just diving right into to doing it was for me anyway the right thing to do, and also I've my art education has been has been essential, and it's given me a very very specific and unique perspective. I feel so. It's been it's been very it's been great. You know, it's been interesting. Interesting. Many many filmmakers that I've worked with, Mikhail Roskam, who I'm working with currently on uh, the drop, is an art major. You know, and he ended up making you know ended up director. 
as he started and went to art school. And when you were working with uh, Thelma Schumacher, what was it that you sort of learned from her from this experience that you bring with you? Oh, when you had well, what, number one, like like in like an almost psychotic work ethic of like you know you 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 do it until you drop. <laughs> that's that's you know that's a, a quote from Zalma. You know like she will do absolutely anything to make something work. You know and Jen look at her track record and she's 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 brilliant. She's and she's she's a great you know inspiration for so many. Yeah. To sort of shift gears here, because you you've worked with a lot of uh, first-time directors, um, and you're currently bringing a documentary to Sundance, and I believe it's with James Cooper? Yes, yes. And is, it's his first feature doc, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah so, I was wondering if you could give us a bit of background on the documentary, uh, Lambert and Stamp, and uh, how you got onto the project. Well, in, like, 2008, I got a call from... Jamesy Cooper and Loretta Harms, the director and the producer of it, saying they had this project and they, you know, they were familiar with my work and they felt like it was, it might be a good match that, you know, they were very curious to see if I would be interested. And they had something, a little, a little, a kind of a teasery kind of thing put together and they had some uh, of the interviews and an idea of some of the archival footage that, that existed of Kit Lambert, who, is, who died in 1974. And I was so intrigued, like completely intrigued. The story is it's a, very, it's a very, very interesting story of a, of a relationship between two men. And the arc of the story is so extraordinary and so interesting and challenging to make into a narrative doc, you know, and, and I, it just totally intrigued me, and I, I, you know, and they were very, very, um, they were very respectful and very cool and uh, and really, really wished for something to, you know, happen with us, and, and it just did, but it was, you know, it, it was challenging in terms of time and in terms of money, of course, so I were initially started, I worked for about, about 16 weeks doing, like, initial, like I almost called the first kind of touch of it, clusters, I'd kind of start to find confluence of, of the interviews and the core of parts of the story started like roughing out like different um, aspects of the story, especially Chris's background and his kind of personal rise and, and Kit's background. Because the interesting thing about this relationship, there were two drastically different people Chris Stamp was born in abject poverty, like in the East, and during the Blit, his brother was Terrence Stamp, he is. Terrence is alive. Well, Chris died a year ago, sadly. But he did get the, the chance to know that this was going on. And that he was, when, part of it was, it's a project, of, an extreme passion project. The last thing that this is, is a tribute film, but it's born of real regard and love. I mean, they... James e. Cooper goes by the name Doug, so I'll, I'll say Doug when I'm referring to him at the moment. But um, Doug and Loretta were very close with Chris. They knew, I mean, Doug knew Chris years before, you know, like, and he just, like, started thinking of doing the, the project in, like, the early 2000s. And it's just born of love, you know? It's, it's, it's really, it's very, very interesting. And the, the, the two parallel stories are, the, so Chris is this guy who was born on the East End. His father was a tugboat captain, very, very poor, 
he was born and like with like two years old when the, when London was being bombed daily, and that was a challenge of how to how to get these like kind of like impressions of their early lives into the weaving of this story and not go too far into it, but get enough of it to to resonate and feel it. So uh, Chris is like again, he, his earliest memories are like in bomb shelters and like his mother and his aunt moving he and his brother and and siblings like from hobble to hobble after they're bombed out. They'd have like a wall that was like, what's made of canvas, you know, and then they didn't have a bath. Bathrooms were like, they didn't have bathrooms. He he didn't have a bathroom until he was after he was like 20 or something like that. And Kit Lambert, on the other hand, was his father was Constant Lambert, who was actually this Wunderkind a composer that in the early, early part of the 20th century wrote for Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe and then became the conductor for the Royal Ballet and had an ongoing affair with Margot Fontaine. And he was like this like uh, very eccentric, very, um, very inspired guy. And Kit was born into this world of high culture and he went to all the public school, private school, you know, that is in London, and then went to Oxford. He was like in the army, and he was very highly cultured. And it wasn't that he was rich; it was that he was he was culturally privileged. And, and seeing he went to these these kinds of schools because there was like there was a fund from like the the, um, the arts funds and things like that that pushed him through through these worlds. But he lived and was surrounded by by not only high culture, but in, lived in, in in a way beyond his means from as far back as he started. So he was like, that was kind of a part of his his makeup. But they parallel to one another. They both became assistant directors around the same time. Kit was a little older than Chris. And they, at, at like um, Shepard and Studios, they would run into one another and somehow they became friends because they both were like obsessed with uh, new wave cinema and, and Summa Verte, they, this was like in the late 50s, early 60s, and they just started to have this, this like friendship of a professional friendship that grew into something where they actually lived together and they started writing scripts and they made this decision that they were going to break out of being assistants by, they were going to find, it was like 1963, beginning of that kind of British invasion, there's bands everywhere, we're going to find a band, we're going to kind of uh, manage them and, and film, let them make it, make it something that, that's real, you know. And so they went out looking, and they found the who. (laughs) They were called the high numbers at the time. But they they found this amazing band, and then they ended up, you know, they they did do some shooting, and some of that footage is quite a bit, every inch of that footage is used in the movie, and it was so fun to work with. And there's very interesting archival footage of, of Kit, from like excuse me, from French television and German television, he spoke fluent German, I mean, fluent German, fluent French, and people that have seen it say, you know, it's not the kind of fluent German that's normal, just like second language. And so looking at it, said, you know, it seems like yeah, he's somebody who could probably read Goethe in German, you know, and then the French is amazing. Like he was a linguist on top of that, but he was just incredibly sophisticated guy, and he. With his also his understanding and his background in music, he really shepherded Pete Townsend and very much um, influenced him and inspired him to go on to writing a larger piece, something that is in a larger context with first with Quick One and then with Tom. 
onward. But the I'm just I don't want to give you too much, you know. I, I want to give you the kind of taste that's going to make everybody's tongue wag. You know, I want everybody to run out and see it because it's it's uh, it's, it's very special. It yeah. really is, and I'm very very proud of the work that I did on it. That was 2008 when I first met with them, and it's premiering tomorrow in 2014. <laughs> so it's been a it's been a process, and I've edited. Four features in the meantime. Now, how do you do something like that? Because it's such a long process from 2008 to you know, now. It's the way it is. Is they had so many things that they had to deal with, with rights issues and what to shoot. Because Doug also shot a certain amount of footage for it, and it was a question of what to shoot and when to shoot it. Things that were um, support material that's very strong and very beautifully done throughout the film and those things when I was away those were the kind of things they were doing and it was it was all a matter of like I'd try, try and figure out when I was available or able to do things and it was sort of like it became a kind of a mercurial kind of like luck or, or mishap thing or whether I was available or not but it was yeah it was squeezed in here and there yeah, and luckily last year a, a window of time came in September of 2013. No, 2012. Excuse me, I can't get my years together. And I did a solid four months to finish, and and I started and I started on the rest of Because well, one of my questions was going to be like, how do you keep perspective or focus, especially with docs, with that you know some docs can have hundreds of hours of footage and you're weeding through things to find moments or elements and you're you're cutting for a couple well, months. You know, then... my in my initial in my initial like sixteen weeks I, I vetted every inch that was there and felt like I really, really understood what was there. You know, in terms of the myriad of interview material and archival footage that existed. And it was really the challenge of that was finding a way to effectively tell the story. And that just sort of like floated, you know, through the through the years <laughs> and, and, and developed. I had one really inspired four weeks before Moneyball that was very extreme. It was like, it was like, uh, a real eureka ha 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 moment where Doug and I were so excited because it was like there were like very key elements of like what is this really about you know and then sometimes things really crystallize and you, you discover that kind of way of telling something that's very special and that that happened to him you know, was like, and what, what that kind of was was like the effect of how do we show the curial kind of happenstance inspiration of it you know and uh, that came from from part of like chris's story of how he had a crisis and he knew that you know like he hears this guy who you know came from real serious poverty gets you know through his brother his brother like his basically he was like in a gang and he was like leaning toward like from where he came from he worked on the tugboats or he became a criminal and he was leaning more towards becoming a criminal and his brother who was an actor who just, you know, just another, you know, amazing guy who just came out of nowhere and, and was completely self-discovered was asked by his mother, look, you know, Chris is in, just, you know, things seem to be going bad there, you know, can you help him out? And, I, you know, to tell you the truth, I don't want to sit here and tell you the whole story, you know, it just doesn't fit, because I could, but I don't want. You know, I, I really want people to see it, and I want you to see it too. But it's like it's very complex and wonderful story of 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 self invention is a lot of it. 
<laughs> no, because it, it was a passion project for, for not only the directors, but for you, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and it and was necessary to do that. You know? I've noticed that like a, like a lot of my friends who are cutting, uh, you know, they cut projects in between projects or as they're going, it's sort of on the side. And why do you think it's important for um, editors to be doing these types of passion projects? You know, it reminds you of why, why, why you're doing what you do. So, and also, you know, it's a collaborative art and you, you find you know, like-minded people who are inspired, many of whom come to you for help. Like, we, we, we feel like you can help us tell this story. And you make a bond, and you 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 create something together, and that's it's it's exciting. So that was part one of my interview with Christopher. Again, if you have a passion project, make sure to call us or email us info at aotg.com or call us at four two three three five two post. All right, you gotta let us know what your passion project is. As I mentioned before, we have a nab booth. It's SL or South Lower one five eight one six. Make sure to check us out. We've got mini golf there for people. We've got live streaming, and we're going to be revealing our new uh, tool at NAB. And it's something that we're hoping to make. Of course, everything's free from us. We want knowledge to get out there. That's our goal as AOTGs to share information, particularly about post production. So we built this new system to sort of help get information out. We're hoping to make it available to all the associations and unions in the world. So check it out, it's South Lower 15816, and in a couple of weeks we're going to make the announcement of what that is, that project that we're releasing, and as soon as we do, I will post a podcast so you can hear about it. At the booth, we're going to be doing, again, live events, live streaming, and part of that live streaming is going to involve bringing in post-focused podcasts, and that includes Going Postal. We also have Josh After from Manhattan at Workshop hosting live talks, as well as Michael Kames, who's, if you know Michael, he's the best of the best in terms of 3D, sound, 4K, you name the technology, he knows and understands it. So he's going to be there talking. As I mentioned before, uh, we have a contest. So we've got this new phone number. It's Again, it's 423-352-POST or 423-352-7678. And if you have an accent that's anywhere but North America, maybe even some of the North American ones might not make it. It's going to transcribe it in a weird way. So we use Google Voice, which automatically transcribes and sends us an email whenever someone's called. And of course, my coding partner is from South Africa. And when we we're setting this up, he left a lot of messages testing. And so I thought I would save one that's really short and see if anyone can figure out what Google was transcribing. So if you think you know what my partner actually said you can call us it's 423-352-POST and let us know what you think he said so here's what was transcribed and sent to me in the email and this is what he said in the message okay so here it goes hey AOTG Bloomington Indiana message bye so what he said again is hey AOTG Bloomington Indiana message bye and maybe I'll try I'll try and read that like like I'm actually leaving a message. Hey AOTG, Bloomington, Indiana message. Bye. Okay, so the words Bloomington and Indiana aren't correct. The rest is all correct. And he was testing it. That's gonna be my my little hint for you guys. He was testing the system. Alright. So if you think you know what the words were, or you just want to take a wild guess, or you want to leave us a weird 
message with an accent, see if you can fool Google Voice. It's 423-352-POST. That's 423-352-7678. And if you get it right, or maybe we'll do the person who gets the closest correct answer, because it's way off, but it's kind of funny that way, you'll get a free shirt. And we've been sending out shirts for a while. We've also got mugs now, so if you're worried or you've won in the past, you can always guess again and we'll send you a mug. So with that said, I'm going to thank Christopher Tellison for allowing me to interview him. we got part two coming. And I'd also like to thank my producer, Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.